Hey guys, and thanks for checking out this episode of the John Campia Show podcast, the audio-only version of the John Campia Show on YouTube. This episode was recorded on Wednesday, July 29th, 2020, titled AMC Dooms Theater Industry with Universal Deal. We're really glad you're here, guys, and for now, let's get to the episode. Now, here's how we're going to run the show, guys. The first half of the show is talking about some predetermined topics that you guys have submitted to us. And then we're going to go into the second half of the show, which is taking your live questions. And you can start sending in a live question right now simply by using the tip link in the description of the video. You can see that right at the top of the description, or you can enter it manually, streamelements.com slash movieblogtv slash tip. And by the way, if you're not watching live and you're watching this after the fact, you can use this tip link anytime and your question will be one of the first that gets asked on the very next show. But for now, guys, let's get into something right off the top. And the first thing we're going to talk about here, and this just came out this morning, you know, Rob, one of the shows that I have been extremely excited about coming into this season three in particular, Doom Patrol season two, The Boys season two, and the other one is Umbrella Academy season two. I loved Umbrella Academy season one. It was a little bit, it looked a little weird to me and I didn't really uh, read the, uh, the comic versions of it. So it was a little bit of a mystery to me. I love that show. Uh, as I did The Boys, as I did Doom Patrol, but I've been really looking forward to this. Now, of course, Season 2 comes out on Friday is when they launch Season 2. And today, they dropped, I think it's three minutes. Yeah. The three-minute opening scene of Umbrella Academy Season 2. And all I can say is, holy hell, it looks awesome it gives first of all it just launches the opening scene of season two just launches into this big battle sequence going on and then it goes through each of the members of the umbrella academy getting a chance to show off their power in this battle sequence going on and it's done quick perfect music selection to go along with it it like listen if i wasn't already completely stoked for this season this would have taken me there. I, guys, I don't know if you've had a chance to see it, but I highly, highly, highly recommend. I think, Rob, you said it's like the number one trending thing on YouTube right now. you got to get over there and check it out. Rob, I know you had a chance uh, to watch this opening scene from Umbrella Academy Season 2. What did you think? Dude, first of all, alternate histories, nuclear weapons, superpowers, an army of the dead, dead soldiers, uh, five showing up and no one, no one, he doesn't know what the hell's going on. Uh, I, it, it, I don't think you could have had a better opening scene for this, this season. I mean, I like you, I love the umbrella Academy. I, I like the original comics, but I, I dare say the show might surpass them. And I, mm. I love the casting of all the characters and I, I'm just very invested in this show. And it's, you know, this between, like you said, the trifecta of the boys, the umbrella Academy and the doom patrol we are getting peak superhero television, peak comic book television. And it just makes me wonder about the possibilities. I mean, I hope somebody scoops up Howard Chaykin's American flag or or I mean, I can't I can't imagine what we're going to get after this. But, man, I can't wait till Friday. You know, what's really neat about that. I know we've mentioned this before, but when you look at those three shows, Doom Patrol, The Boys, Umbrella Academy, none of them are based on the high profile, famous comic book characters. Nope. I mean, 
you you can make there well cyborg is in doom patrol okay yeah you can you can make that argument but other than that really the boys these are not your prime you know household name comic book properties but these are the ones that are really killing it on television right now and i absolutely love it question is for you guys have you had a chance to see this opening scene for umbrella academy season two if you're not already excited about it I think this little trailer spot, this little scene will do it for you. Jump down into the comment section below and let me know what you guys think. All right, guys. With that down, let's move on to our main topics today. And how do we select our main topics here in the John Campy Show? Well, it's really rather simple. You see, you guys come up with them by going anytime 24-7 over to www.thejohncampyshow.com slash contact. Once you guys get there, you're going to see a form. Fill it out with your topic or question. It's totally free. Hit submit, and then maybe, just maybe, you might see your submission featured as a main topic here on the John Campion Show. With that down, let's get on to main topic number one. And our first main topic today gets submitted to us by Peter Evington. And Peter Evington writes, Greetings, film fans. I know we've talked about Deadpool 3 to death. But I wanted to see if you've seen the recent video that Ryan Reynolds put out today. This would have been yesterday regarding the mystery of who leaked the original Deadpool test footage that ultimately got the movie made. I know it's probably just something fun Ryan put up, which he does do on social media. But could there be more to it? Could it mean a Deadpool three may be on the way? Thanks. All right. Thanks a lot for sending in that question, man. And listen. Yeah. So what happened is you guys may remember it was about a year or so ago. Ryan Reynolds got on social media and kind of posted this. I guess the best way to describe it is like a uh, a theory board, you know, where you have pictures of different things with strings connecting them and all that kind of stuff. And it was him kind of mockingly asked who leaked that original Deadpool test footage. Of course, there's a common theory out there that Ryan Reynolds himself was the guy who did it, but he's never affirmed that that's the case. Well, what happened yesterday, and it could mean nothing. It could mean something. Ryan Reynolds got on social media and posted not just that image. He posted this like 30 second video set to the theme of unsolved mysteries. It's a video montage set to the theme of unsolved mysteries, bringing up again who leaked that original footage. And of course, Ryan writes on his uh, social media yesterday. It's why the next Deadpool film is taking so long. Still trying to solve this. Who leaked the original uh, thing? Happy leak anniversary. Of course, when that footage came out. Now, for those of you who don't know what that we're talking about here, if you remember, before Deadpool ever got greenlit, and there was still a question about whether it was going to get made. If it does, are they going to go PG thirteen? Are they going to go rated R with Deadpool? All that kind of stuff. There was out of nowhere. This test footage for what a Deadpool could look like got leaked. And of course, it was that scene, or at least an early version of that scene, when he jumps off the bridge into the car and starts taking everything out. That got everybody talking, and all of a sudden, we were getting a Deadpool movie. Rob, the part that's interesting to me right now is the question of Deadpool has been coming up a bunch lately. Of course, we, you know, I think it was Rob Liefeld was talking about, oh, he doesn't even know if there's going to be a Deadpool 3 anymore. Of course, he's got his own little kind of thing going on with Disney right now. Uh, a lot of people <laughs> wondering, why hasn't there been any news? Although I've always said, hey, there isn't any news about X-Men or Fantastic Four either. Relax, you know, everything like that. But I don't know that if it's coincidental that while all this stuff is kind of going on and there's a bit of a crescendo right now about where's Deadpool 3, that Ryan Reynolds 
puts out a thing and says, oh, uh, here's why it's taking so long. Still referencing Deadpool, referencing another movie. Look, I don't want to be one of these tinfoil hat wearing conspiracy theorists who reads way too much into a little thing. Although, let's be honest, that's kind of what us film fans do. We take some little thing and read (laughs) way too much into it. We all do it. And at the risk of doing that here, I think I'm interpreting this little tweet that Reynolds put out as a little bit of a nod of the head saying, don't worry, guys. We haven't forgotten about Deadpool 3. It's not off the burner. Just relax. Uh, Again, I may be reading way too much into that, but I think this is very subtly Ryan Reynolds saying to the fans, we haven't forgotten Deadpool 3. Don't worry. I don't know. Rob, you saw this thing. What did you make of it? And am I reading way too much into it? Which I, I do sometimes. What do you think? Well, you know, Ryan Reynolds is very cheeky and he really understands how, how to use social media. So, uh, look, I think it was his way of both. Uh, remember, he is talking about the release of the test footage, which is really what ultimately goosed Fox into maybe moving forward with the feature film. So maybe this little reminder could be, a, you know, a way to goose Disney or Feige or Marvel or whomever to remember, hey, you've got your lead actor promoting a movie and a franchise, a a third film that doesn't yet exist. Perhaps we should get on it. Having someone like (laughs) Ryan Reynolds out there. I mean, you can't pay for that kind of marketing. So, you know, I, I don't think reading into it, there's look, whenever Ryan Reynolds tweets something, it's it's well thought of like he he doesn't just do this in a vacuum there's a reason why he's doing these things he doesn't just do it for fun i mean he does it for fun but he also knows that hey uh i think like Zack snyder remembered what what the the deadpool leaked footage did Zack snyder played social media perfectly to get the snyder cut done i think this might be a new way of asymmetric uh movie pitching you know, with the lead actor who's going to play the role being like, yo, what's up? My last two movies together made $1.5 billion. Why, well, what are I we mean, waiting for? A little bit of a different situation here, though, is, is I mean, for instance, there is this image. Remember when, when Disney took over Fox, Ryan Reynolds put out this thing about being arrested at Disneyland. And right. then Alan Horn, Alan Horn, the high lord almighty of all things movies at Disney, Alan Horn, the big boss there. He actually brought this image up at CinemaCon to to talk about it. And then Ryan Reynolds, a number of months ago, also revealed on social media that he has gone. He was going over to Marvel. He was at the the offices and they were talking Deadpool and that they are developing some stuff. So it's not like this is in an empty vacuum. Like Ryan has already said in the past that, yeah, we've we've been talking to Marvel. We, We are working on stuff. Blah, blah, blah. So I don't feel like it's as much as in a vacuum as some other things have been. Right. So I don't know. I guess the question you raise a good point, though. The question is for you guys. Do you think this was just simply a fun little tweet that Ryan Reynolds was putting out, which it very well could be? Or are you putting on the same tinfoil hat that I am and thinking, no, no, no. I, I think Ryan Reynolds is subtly trying to communicate to the audience saying, don't worry, we haven't forgot this. I don't know. Am I reading too much into it? I might be. Guys, what do you think? Jump down into the comment section below and let us know your thoughts. All right, guys. With that down, let's move on to main topic number two. And our second main topic today gets submitted to us by Adam Victor. And Adam Victor writes, Hey, John, 
So I come from a house divided. My wife does not like Star Trek Discovery, but I absolutely love it. Yeah. It's kind of like the John Campia show house here. I think we need counseling. Anyway, they just announced that season three of the show will debut on October 15th and will run uninterrupted through all 13 episodes until its conclusion. I was a little worried the pandemic would delay it, but I'm glad to see it's coming. What are your thoughts? Thanks and bring on the filthy. All right. Thanks a lot, man, for bringing uh, that up. And yes, uh, Star Trek Discovery, much like your household, Adam, this household is a little bit divided here because uh, Robert is not a big fan of Star Trek Discovery. I am a big fan of Star Trek Discovery. That is what it is. But I was like you in that I was thinking that the pandemic situation could very well lead to a delay. Uh, it could very well put us in a position where we're not going to actually get this season for a while, but apparently they got a whole lot done before the pandemic hit. And now we had do have it coming out in October. If you are a fan of Star Trek Discovery, this is great news because we got this coming. If you're, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Agnostic on Star Trek Discovery. You've never seen it. Well, this is also good news because in this era of the pandemic, when we're kind of hurting for new and original content coming out, we got a, you know, another season of a new original show. One of the things that I actually really quite liked about this announcement, Rob, was the fact, because this always drives me crazy. First of all, I don't like the fact, I'm not a fan of 10 episode seasons. I'm a fan of real full seasons, but being that as it may, that's a separate issue. Hmm. I especially don't like when we get TV shows that are like eight episodes, 10 episodes, 12 episodes that take like a four week break, you know? Even when the show's already so short, I like the fact that they said we are actually going to start this thing and it's going to run every week until it's done. This comes to us from Joe Blow, who writes, Trekkies among you will be pleased to know that CBS All Access have announced that Star Trek Discovery's third season will launch on the streaming service on October 15th, 2020. Mark your calendars. But this is the key part to me. Once the 13 episode season kicks off, it will air uninterrupted through its finale next year. I love that news. I love that. If you're going to have these short seasons things, that's fine. I like the idea of running these all the way through. But, you know, Rob, one of the other things that I noticed you're talking about, we remember at the end of the last season that they ended up going to another place in time and all that kind of stuff. You know what it reminds me of? And I don't know if they're going to go in this direction or not. Do you remember that Kevin Sorbo sci-fi show Andromeda? Did you ever watch that? Yeah, I did. Where basically he found himself out of time and decided it was his mission to reestablish, what was it, the Confederacy, the Alliance, whatever whatever their, it was clearly a Star Trek ripoff, but whatever right. it is they called their thing. I, I get that feeling that that might be the direction this season's going and that they, wherever they are in time, they're going to reestablish the, I mean, I don't know, that's speculative. I just like the fact that they're going to be running this thing all the way through. Rob, as somebody who this, you know, you're somebody that this show doesn't work for. What do you think about the news that they are going to be launching their season in October and it's going to be running interrupted? What are your thoughts on that? Well, it's interesting because, you know, they're going to have basically 23 weeks of uninterrupted Star Trek. They've got Star Trek Lower Decks starting, I believe, next week. That looks horrible. I know. I know. But, I, you know, as a a lifelong Star Trek fan, as much as it pains me to watch Kurtzman era Star Trek, I still watch it all. And, um, you know, I think it's interesting. I'll be watching. I always go into every Star Trek episode with an open mind. I really do. 
But, you know, I can't imagine this image you're showing right now. Is there anything more un-Star Trek than this? I mean, a bunch of revolutionaries, but whatever. I won't get into that. I do they're, not, find- they're explorers. They're in a different place, and they're still holding up the ideals of the Federation. Yeah, that's that's well, as Star Trek as it gets, man. I, uh, I don't know, but we'll see. What's interesting is this uh, does not have any international distribution yet. Uh, Star Trek Discovery, there's no Amazon, there's no Netflix distribution. It's only on CBS All Access, which means it's only available in North America. And that's really telling about the state of Star Trek, I think. But look, I hope it's good. Uh, I hope it's it's to me, it can only be an improvement. (laughs) Uh, But, you know, I I want it to be good. I, I hope it's good. And, um, you know, they obviously spend a lot of money on this show. My objections are not to necessarily the production value. My objections are always to the writing. And maybe right. it'll, it will have improved this season. Well, the question is for you guys. I keep hearing this uh, loud noise. Anyway, I keep uh, – the question for you guys then becomes – what do you think about this announcement? Star Trek Discovery is coming back. It is going to get its season going here, and it will run uninterrupted. Maybe you're not a Star Trek Discovery fan, and this means nothing. Maybe you're somebody like me, and you are a Star Trek Discovery fan, and this is very exciting. What do you guys think? Jump down in the comments section below and let me know your thoughts. All right, guys. With that down and out of the way, let's get into our third and main and final main topic today. And our third and final main topic today gets submitted to us by Jared Phillips. And Jared Phillips writes, Variety published an article 30 minutes prior to me sending this message, this was yesterday, about the new deal struck between Universal and AMC Theaters. I'm sure you guys all know what it is we're talking about now. Uh, This deal cuts the theatrical window down from three weeks before Universal, down to three weeks before Universal uh, can premiere movies on premium VOD platforms. Actually, it's less than three weeks. It's three weekends, which is actually 17 days from 90 days to 17 days. What are your thoughts? Will this ultimately lead to the window going away altogether? Thank you for always putting out great content. All right. Thanks a lot for sending that in, man. And for those of you who may just be caught getting caught up, the news broke yesterday that AMC theaters and Universal Pictures have signed a new agreement that basically says this. AMC will show Universal Pictures. Now, I got to correct myself on something here. Uh, Adam Aaron, who is the CEO of AMC Theaters, when Universal put out Trolls World Tour on uh, direct to streaming without consulting with the movie theaters, Adam Aaron, and I showed the quote on the show before, Adam Aaron said, we will never show Universal films that follow this release strategy. We're never going to do it. And some people were reporting that, oh, AMC is just not going to play Universal movies. And I try to correct people say, no, no, Adam Aaron said they're not going to show movies that follow this release pattern. Well... What I didn't see was there was another quote put out by Adam Aaron that was more definitive that said, no, we're not going to be playing Universal movies at all. So I stand corrected. I was relying on one quote from his, but apparently there was another quote that superseded that. So I stand corrected. So AMC was in a position where they said, we're not going to play Universal movies anymore, period. Well, now comes this news that AMC has signed a deal that they're going to play Universal films and Universal will be able to go straight to premium VOD just 17 days after they release in theaters. 
this now i understand for some people who aren't really entrenched in the the movie world that maybe that sounds what's the big deal that sounds kind of inconsequential this is a tectonic shift this is nothing short of a massive evolutionary tectonic shift in what the movie theater and the movie theater industry has been let's go over some of the details of what this deal entails all right number one amc will be able to show universal films in their theaters that is of course a reversal of what adam aaron had said previously so now they're back universal films can play at amc point number two 17 days after release or three weekends universal can now put those movies on premium vod for a premium rental price so probably looking at 20 to 25 dollars so you're going to be able 17 days after universal film plays in amc theaters universal can make those films available on premium video rentals for like 20 to 25 bucks <clears throat> point number three amc theaters will then get 10 percent of Universal's VOD rental revenue from that movie. So if there is uh, $100 gets made in rentals, AMC gets 10 bucks. If there's $1,000, AMC gets 100. If there's $100,000, AMC gets $1,000. You, you understand what 10% is. So number one, AMC can show Universal uh, movies. Number two, 17 days after release, Universal has the ability to put those on PVOD. They don't have to do it after 17 days. Universal can wait longer. But we'll get to that in a second. Point number four. These films cannot go to regular streaming services or regular rentals like three to six dollar rentals until after the regular three month theatrical window. So even though Universal will have the right to put these movies on premium VOD for like 20 to 25 bucks or whatever, they still can't like, say, put it on Netflix or some other streaming service or put it out for a regular rental price of like three to six bucks. They won't be able to do that for still the full 90 day window, the roughly 90 day window. That's important to understand. And of course, number five, Universal will also have the right to wait longer to put a film out on PVOD if they so choose. So like if they put out Jurassic World Dominion and they're seeing it still making big money at the box office after three weeks, they can make week number four and week number five and keep it exclusive to theaters for a little bit longer if they so choose, if they want to. This, Rob, is insane. This is insanity. I had an owner and a partial owner of two different smaller movie theater chains write to me yesterday. One of them used the word stupid. The other used the word treacherous in referring to AMC theaters. I literally saw some other theatrical exhibitors referring to AMC as traitors, as treacherous, uh, as backstabbers, as not, not nice stuff. <laughs> As a matter of fact, it goes a little bit further. Just before we started today's broadcast, the second largest theatrical exhibitor in the world, Cineworld, which owns Regal Theaters. For those of you in North America, Cineworld owns a massive chain in the UK, but they also own a lot of other stuff, including Regal. 
Some people yesterday were speculating that, oh, okay, well, now any minute, Regal's going to sign this deal too. Oh, no, they're not. (laughs) Regal this morning finally came out. Cineworld, the owners of Regal, finally came out and broke their silence, basically saying this business model that AMC is trying to do makes no sense. It makes no sense. This is what's written in Deadline. Those in town assuming that one of the other big exhibition circuits will fall in line with AMC and seek their own 17-day theatrical window uh, with PVOD deal with Universal will soon realize that it will be a cold day in hell. A Cineworld CEO, Mookie Grandiger, I always mispronounce his name, who oversees the world's second largest chain exclusively, tells Deadline that we do not see any business sense in this model when it comes to Universal and AMC's agreement for a 17-day theatrical window for movies with the option to go PVOD. Now, I'm going to jump down to the last part of this thing uh, where, where he says this. This is the CEO of Cineworld Regal saying, clearly, we are not going to change our policy with regards to showing only movies that are respecting the theatrical window. So it's like, okay, AMC, you want to go ahead and you want to do your little thing. You want to make the 17 day deal with, uh, with these guys, you go right ahead. You go right ahead and do that. We're not. And Regal wasn't just saying that to AMC. They're saying that to universal. They saying, look, we're not going to do this. And that becomes very, very problematic for Universal, and it becomes very problematic for AMC. Let's, for a second, ladies and gentlemen, let's enter into Professor Campia's classroom, shall we? And the, the Professor Campia's classroom of indiscernible chicken scratch. That's me. Okay. So let's look at this just for a second, shall we? All right. Here we got down here at the bottom, we've got um, uh, Universal. I always have bad handwriting. It's hard when I'm trying to do it in a tablet I'm holding with one hand. Okay, so we got Universal, right? Now, that's that's a studio. Now, up here at the top, this is what's interesting. There is an organization called NATO, okay? That is the North, or sorry, yeah, the uh, National Association of Theater Owners. It's NATO. also the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. You were right. Yes, it is. That's why people get confused when you say NATO. It's like, isn't that the military alliance? It's also the National Association of Three Theater Owners. Now, the National Association of Three Theater Owners, they represent theaters like AMC. They represent theaters like Regal. They represent theaters like Cineworld or Cinemark and Cineworld. They represent theaters like, I don't know, Landmark, and they represent over 60,000 screens. So a whole bunch of other distributors whose names maybe I can't think of right now. So here we have the North, the National Association of Theater Owners, and they kind of represent all these kind of uh, bodies. So here's what Universal did. In trying to make this deal, instead of doing what they should have done, which is going right to NATO to try to foster a deal with NATO which would have included all of these theater chains because they all are represented there, right? So they would have done some collective bargaining. Instead of going to NATO to try to figure this out, what Universal did instead was they just went right to AMC. And there's a reason they went right to AMC because AMC is the injured buffalo in the herd right now. You know, what do the lines do? They look for the, the old and the sick. Right now, AMC is the limping buffalo. They're the ones in the biggest debt. They're the ones in most danger of going under. They're the weak link right now. So Universal, and I don't blame them for this, they go, ah, if we can get the largest movie theater chain in the world to sign this bad deal, 
then it's going to put pressure on all the other guys. It's going to put pressure on all the other guys to also sign this deal. So let's go and attack that weak Buffalo, that injured Buffalo in the herd. And they went after AMC and AMC signs this deal. Here's the problem, though. This is the problem that they're going to face, that uh, Universal is going to face. It's fabulous. That's great if you've got uh, like AMC. Okay. You got AMC has signed on for this thing for a theatrical window of 17 days. But guess what? If Regal or Cinemark or Landmark, whatever, if they don't sign up, Universal doesn't get to release their thing 17 days later. It's great that they have this deal with AMC, but if Regal doesn't sign this deal, if Cinemark doesn't sign this deal, if Landmark doesn't sign this deal, then Universal has one of two choices. One, this 17-day window is fantasy and we can't do it. Or two, they only show their movies in AMC theaters and in none of the 80% of the other screens in North America. That's the choice that they're left with. So it's great that they made this deal with AMC, but if Regal doesn't sign up for this deal, they can't do it. Regal represents almost half, uh, uh, sorry, <laughs> not almost half. Regal represents almost as many screens in North America as AMC has. And in some territories in the United States, there's only Regal cinemas. That's not to mention things like Cinemark or Landmark or, or other places like that. That's not even to mention any of them. And by the way, Here's the other interesting thing when it comes to this Universal deal. Let's look at streaming for a second. So we've got we've got Universal, right? Universal. They put out streaming and they get some money for it. And let's say they start by having 100% of the revenue, right? Let's say Universal starts streaming. They start by having 100% of the revenue. Okay. Well, we've got iTunes or places like iTunes. They're going to keep 20% of whatever rental revenue Universal has. Now we've got AMC. AMC is going to get to keep 10%. Well, what happened? Let's say Regal does sign up and Regal just said they're not going to do this. Do you think Regal's going to take less than AMC got? No. So Regal's going to want 10%. And what about all the other ones? You know, the Cinemarks, the Landmarks, the, uh, the, the other kind of theaters represented there. Well, you add that all up, that's probably going to come out to about 15% once you add up all the, those other theaters. So suddenly, what Universal had, now you got 20, 30, 40, 55%. Now suddenly, Universal is only keeping 45% of whatever rentals they were going to have on their movies. Maybe Universal thinks that's worth it, possibly. I mean, they, they could be looking at it that way. That is one way to look at it. But Rob, the main thing here is this. This is a deal, this is a shark that has no teeth. If these other theaters do not sign up for this deal, then this deal Universal made with AMC is frivolous. It doesn't mean anything. It's just a theoretical thing unless Regal. And Cineworld, again, let's bring this up, Rob, because you're the one who pointed this out to me earlier today. Cineworld, you know, one of the biggest exhibitors in the world, the second largest biggest exhibitor in the world, just said, no chance in hell. No chance in hell are we doing this deal. No way. So do you think Universal is going to put out Fast and the Furious 
only in AMC screens that only represent about 20% of the screens in the world? Not going to happen. Not going to happen. They're going to put them on Cineworld screens in the UK, on Regal screens in the US. And because they put them on those screens, they're going to have to honor the full theatrical window. Rob, one other thing is this. Adam Aaron, I'm, I'm becoming more and more convinced, is an incompetent boob, uh, the CEO of AMC. Because before, when I thought he was just saying, we won't play universal movies that don't respect the theatrical window, I'm like, okay, that, that's, that makes sense. I get that. But now finding out that, oh, no, no, what, what he was actually saying is, oh, we're just not going to play universal movies at all. It's like, okay, well, that seems rather impetuous. That seems rather knee-jerk, reactionary, and kind of putting your own back against the wall. And then making a deal. Now, listen, I get it. They are desperate. AMC is desperate. They're in financial trouble. I understand all of that. But if you take a vial of poison that will kill you in two days to solve your cough today, that makes you an idiot. And that's why everybody else and dude, I tried to get a hold of uh, the National Association of Theater Owners. I, tr I <laughs> called their PR person yesterday. There was no answering the phone and their mailboxes were full because everybody's been waiting all night. I was waiting for Regal to respond and I was waiting for NATO to respond. Regal just responded this morning saying no chance in hell. And right now we're just kind of waiting on Cinewar or NATO to make their response. Rob, I remember when I was at AMC theaters when I was still working there and I went out to their head main office campus in uh, uh, Leewood, Kansas. And one of the execs, I remember around that time when I was at AMC, there was a, there was a, the issue of maybe shrinking the theatrical window came up. I think one or two of the studios were trying to get the theatrical window shrunk from 90 days to like, like 55 days or something like that. And I remember one of the executives at AMC told me that were we to ever shrink the theatrical window, it would be catastrophic for the movie theater industry. That's that's what an AMC rep told me, an executive at AMC told me while I was working with AMC, if we were to shrink the theatrical window, it would be catastrophic for the movie going industry. And guess what? He ain't wrong. You suddenly put out movies that are like that has a 17 day window, just three weekends. What's going to happen in weekend two? The average film goer is going to go, oh, yeah, we could go see Invisible Man. Oh, we only have to wait like another week and a half and we can just and I can just watch it at home. OK. And then Universal, instead of getting a family of four going to go see their new you know, animated thing and making $70 off of box office revenue, they're going to get a you know, they're going to get a family of four with another family of four getting it for 20 bucks on streaming 20 bucks, which they got to give 20% to the streaming service. They're going to have to give 10% to AMC and they're going to give other percentages to other theaters as well. Anyway. Just sticking from the theatrical thing, this will kill the movie theater industry as we know it. It will absolutely kill it. And my favorite thing in the world, the movie going experience is never going to be the same again. And that's why I think we're seeing places like Cineworld digging in their heels and say, screw that and screw you. I think all AMC has accomplished here has to make a lot of enemies in their own industry. I think they have pissed off. NATO members, they've pissed off Cineworld and Regal. I've got other movie theater owners, like smaller movie theater things writing to me, calling them treacherous and backstabbers. And for something that probably won't even come to pass if places like Cineworld maintain their position. And Rob, you look at this whole picture here. There are some ways of looking at it of like, oh yeah, this kind of makes sense from Universal's point of view. AMC is hurting right now. They're desperate for something. 
even if it kills them long term. But I know, Rob, you've seen this whole thing. What's your take on it? Well, I have to say, to be honest, someone brought this up to me when I was live on my own show yesterday. And my first my first response was, oh, this is a good thing. And I, I, I completely copped to saying that. And uh, after I got off my show, I'm like, nah, it's not really a good thing. Because, you know, I got to thinking, John, about being at, 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 um, at the convention we went to last year in Vegas. And um, CinemaCon. Yeah, CinemaCon. And we're at CinemaCon. I actually spent a lot of time talking to independent theater exhibitors from across the country, people that had mom and pop theaters and theaters in more rural areas or in smaller towns and passionate exhibitors who run these businesses. And when I got off my show yesterday, I couldn't help but think of them who don't really have a voice in any of this. You know, they, they, some people have really been affected by the Fox deal and that they can't get access to Fox movies to show whether they're revival screenings or they just want to show it for a couple of weekends. If they want to show an alien marathon or a predator marathon or something, they can't get those things. So one, they don't have a voice in any of this independent distributors. And two, like you said, I think this window is too small. I mean, ultimately I see that the, the studios cutting out the middleman and essentially exhibitors, movie theaters are the middleman. And I think ultimately that's what everybody wants to do. Like right now we have a population that still loves to go to the movies. But as we've seen with streaming in 10 years, if they get rid of movie theaters, no one's going to care. There's going to be a new normal and the studios don't have to give away any box office. And once people are used to paying 25 or 30 or even more for an SVOD release of a big movie, a $200 million movie, people will be like, eh, movie theaters are cool while they lasted. That was a vestige of the late 19th and 20th centuries. I mean, they would love nothing better than to slowly wean the worldwide population off the movie-going experience. And, and I think... One of the things that this pandemic has shown us is how when people are at home, how they've turned to streaming services. I mean, obviously, Trolls World Tour, and we also saw, we, you, as you and I talked about, The King of Staten Island, other movies haven't done as well as they would have hoped going direct to SVOD. But that's only because we don't have a population yet who is used to looking for new movies and using this new thing, they're still we're still all hardwired to think about movie theaters and then home entertainment after that three month window. So what I don't understand about this whole thing is I don't understand why why AMC would make this unilateral decision when they did have collective bargaining. Why 17 days? Why not 30 days? You know, why why such a short window? I could understand them cutting the a three-month window maybe in half you know i could see that but why so short because they even said in the article that i read if a movie's a hit you know disney films sometimes parents can't run out in the first two weeks to go see a disney film even though their kids want to see it they're they're busy their kids are in school uh it's hard so it's not until the third or fourth weekend that they finally get out and see the new pixar film i mean disney as you pointed out uh, to me yesterday they had an 11 billion dollar year at the global box office last year 11 billion dollars that is not chump change 
And I can't imagine that Disney, that has been surfing the ex- the theatrical, the worldwide theatrical exhibition market, they've been surfing the big waves over the last couple of years, doing really, really well, wouldn't necessarily be eager to see that business go away anytime soon. And now, would Disney suddenly, is every, the- is every studio, the ones that are left at least, are they all going to be pressured to accept this? And, and I wonder, I mean... Uh, wouldn't you rather make $11 billion at the worldwide box office before you put your movies on a streaming service? I would think you would. So, and, and I know the movie theater chains would want to do that. And I think the ecosystem as it exists currently is a good one. It's worked. It's been certainly working for Disney and Universal's no slouch in that department either when they release a Fast and Furious movie or a Jurassic Park film or even a Blumhouse movie. They're picking up some nice change on, a, on an $8 million movie like The Invisible Man. They did very well theatrically. So I understand within the, the, the confines of this pandemic and, and changing uh, models, economic models, how it could seem to be something good. And AMC, we all, all know, has a $5 billion debt. They just had their debt, uh, their, their lenders give them some more time, some more credit, which is a good thing. But it just seems to me like it's never good to make these decisions when you are in trouble. And I, that's when that's when predatory people come in and say, hey, here, here's a life, a life preserver. Do what we want, even though it might not be in your best interest in the long term. Um, I, I just think it's short sighted. I think it's short-sighted and it's a knee-jerk reaction. And right now, we don't even know when American movie theaters are going to open up and be at capacity. So I think this is Universal taking advantage and it's AMC needing help. And the fact that everybody else was cut out, uh, it's not a good move all the way around. And it's not just because I like going to the movie theater. You just used the the phrase. It's short-sighted. It's incredibly short side. Now, look, you and I have talked about this before. The way the trends in the movie industry work today, more and more of the box office for a movie is being made in the opening couple of weeks, right? Right. So one could make an argument that, well, you know, three weekends. That's what I was saying yesterday. Yeah. uh, Three weekends. You're going to be making the, the majority of your money after three weekends anyway. But the problem is this. The amount of box office you're going to make for those first three weekends is going to drop drastically when you understand that the average moviegoers knows. Like, Because right now, the special part of the specialness of going to the movies is, hey, if I want to see this movie, I should go to the movies. I don't I don't feel like waiting three months for it. So if I want to see this movie, I'm going to go to the movies. Yeah. But there's going to be a lot of people in the general public. It's like, okay, I, I can go to the movies tonight or I can just stay at home and wait, what, 11 more days? And watch at home. So while I get it that most of the box office is made in the first three weeks anyway, that's going to drop. And Rob, I was talking to somebody you and I mutually know who's involved with the home entertainment division of a major studio. And they were saying to me last night, I was talking to them and I, and they said, this makes no sense. He said, look, we talking about home theater uh, uh, distribution for the major studios. We can't make a billion dollars on a movie in home exhibition. We, we can't do that. Like we're not, we're not going to be able to accomplish that in our thing. So I don't know how this makes any sense. Rob, I wanted to bring up uh, one other thing here. You know, speaking about what you were saying about it being short-sighted. Well, Variety wrote another article on this debacle and Variety wrote the following. And I I thought this was a poignant thing that they pointed out. Uh, By the way, part of the thing they point out is that Disney doesn't want to do this. 
because Disney is making money hand over fist, having a strong, healthy theatrical schedule and having their own streaming thing. And they see if you do it right, you're going to make money on both. Yeah. But the variety article goes on to say this by giving talking about AMC, by giving Universal the green light, they will receive a cut of its premium video on demand sales in the short run, talking about being short sighted in the short run, money talks. But in the long run, taking the check from Universal could be disastrous. If moviegoers decide it's a better deal to skip theaters and wait for a few weeks to pay a steep rental fee, that could take a big bite out of box office revenues. Again, it's taking poison that's going to kill you in three days to solve your coughing today. And uh, again, number one, Disney understands that you cannot make the kind of money we make in the theaters. When you do your business right, you cannot make the kind of money in home video that you can. And th there's a reason why like shows get two or 3 million viewers. And if those were box office numbers, that would just be like 20 or 30 million bucks. That's, that's, that's no box office. Disney understands that. But from, again, AMC, I get, I, I, we're only seeing the tip of the iceberg, Rob, and I want to acknowledge this. I'm sure there's a whole bunch of the iceberg still under the water of the right. details that, that we aren't privy to yet. I acknowledge that. Simply working off of what information is at hand, this is some, nothing short of utter lunacy on the part of AMC theaters. This is nothing short of absolute incompetence. And we're starting to hear the other members of the theatrical exhibition community weigh in on this. Not just people writing to me, but Cineworld, Regal are weighing in on this. I expect we're going to get probably a response from NATO at some point today. Maybe if not today, maybe tomorrow. But this is suicidal. This is a treason and a betrayal of the movie theater industry as a whole. And I think, and again, I don't even think they're going to be able to do this deal because Regal's not going to agree to it. So I, I don't know, Rob, how do you see this all, whole thing kind of resolving itself? What do you think ultimately is going to happen here? What, how do you see this? Well, for, I'm curious, you know, as to I, I would love to hear from Universal and have them detail, give us a detailed explanation of what they were thinking about this. And uh, I, I guess I just don't know where they're coming from, aside from the obvious that, well, three weekends is how most movies are performing now anyway. And what I what we were talked about, I don't understand why they would think that the three weekend rule and how much money movies make in those three weekends would hold out if people knew they were going to be able to see movies at home in three weeks from now. Why would a family why would a family of four go out to the movies at all if they knew that a big movie they wanted to see, whether it was a Marvel movie, whether it was a Star Wars movie, whether it was an animated film, a Pixar movie, whatever, why would they go at all to the movie theaters if they knew they were coming home in three weeks? There's no reason for families to go out. And, you know, you market to kids and kids are like, I want to see The Incredibles too. I want to see The Incredibles too. You know, when I was a kid, I, I was a broken record. Till the, my, my parents would have to take me opening weekend. Otherwise, I'd be go insane. So, you know, you're going to – the whole idea of marketing big movies is like who are you marketing to if not the entire general public? But if the entire general public knows that movies are coming home anyway, I guess people would just – why would you ever go to the movie theater? 
Remember, the people that turn out that are big movie fans is not the majority of the population. The majority of the population you get in the long term. Um, and I, I just think that it's it, like you said, it's suicidal because what it'll do is it'll just slowly wean everyone off the theatrical experience. And if that's their it, I think ultimately that's their goal. I hate to say it, but Universal's like, look, it's inevitable. Why don't we just be the first ones to jump head first? We did that with Trolls World Tour. Why don't we just do it? I mean, maybe they're looking at some AI long-term projection of movie theaters or something, but uh, especially now with, with this global pandemic. But I just think that, I, I like you said, I, I think it's suicidal. Yeah, I, I just, again, and we're hearing other movie theaters now coming out and uh, commenting on this movie. And, and there's one other thing, too, to point out in this. Look, I get it that from a consumer point of view, we always want things for free or we want things for as absolutely cheap as possible. And that's our, we are consumers. Of course, we want things for as absolutely cheap as possible, right? But you know, to your example, again, family of five going out to see, you know, Despicable Me 3 or four, whatever it's the next one's going to be, you know, you're talking about, oh, we're probably make 75, $80 in whatever minus 30%. We're still going to wind up with about 40 bucks in profit on this, right? You put this out on home VOD for $20 minus the cut of the streamer service, minus the cut of the theaters that you've cut in on a deal, all this kind of stuff. You're making way less money. Now, on the surface, way less we money. as consumers can go, hey, but this is great. I spend $20 and my family of five can watch this for $20. That's great. But here's the problem. It's like MoviePass was. You remember when MoviePass came out and they said $10 a month unlimited movies. And AMC at the time, now this was this all started when uh, Jerry Lopez was the CEO at, at AMC. That dude was a genius. But when Jerry Lopez was at, was at AMC, they started the thing there. And Jerry Lopez said, no, we're not going to get involved in that because it's not sustainable. And everybody was going, oh, oh, AMC is just being a stick in the mud. Uh, we want we want our unlimited movies for $10. But AMC turned out to be right. It was unsustainable. Like we could do it for $10 a month, but then we're all going to go out of business. And I think that's what a lot of the other movie theaters and what studios like Disney are saying is like this model that Universal seems to want to manifest into reality isn't good for us. In long term, it's not good for the entertainment industry. It's going to mean less high profile movies. It's going to be less quality movies. It's going to be less blockbuster films. It's going to be less of the stuff that we'd love to see. We're going to get ultimately less and less and less of that. There, there will still be some, but we're going to get less because... Studios aren't going to be able to have the year that Disney had last year. $11 billion in the box office last year they were able to make. And they know that's why Disney wants to keep the model. And Universal, who hasn't been anywhere near as successful, wants to try to change it to make the rules of the game suit their strength. So I, 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 I don't know. It just it's Again, I think there's a reason, Rob, why studios like Disney don't think this is a good deal. I think there's a reason why the other theaters in the world don't think this is a good deal. 
Um, and ultimately, I don't think, think anything's going to happen with this. Rob, if you had to give your closing, we've gone on this a long time, but your closing thoughts on this is kind of sum everything up here for us. Well, I, you know, again, I, I'm a little discombobulated in my thoughts about this because I, I want to hear what other people have to say. I want to hear NATO weigh in. I want to hear the other studios weigh in. I, I'm sure Disney's going to prepare a statement because everyone's going to want to know, uh, is Paramount, is Warner Brothers, is Disney going to follow suit with this? And I, I, I really don't know. I, I, maybe we don't have all the information yet. But right now, I, at first, I thought maybe it could be a good thing. Now, I'm just like, no, no, it's, it's not. It's not good. Not good, John. I'm thinking that this isn't even going to, because of theaters like Regal saying nope, I think that's going to stop this in its tracks. Do you think it, it moves ahead even without the support of other theaters? Or do you think the other theaters, despite what Regal is saying, that they eventually do yield to this how do you think this is going to work out well i i mean if 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 i guess if amc and universal are stubborn and move forward the other theaters can accept it or not and maybe universal's prepared for that um but what if the other studios don't go along with it and and it's only universal uh then it becomes a test study and it actually somehow works out i mean they could just be barreling forward thinking, damn the torpedoes full speed ahead. And I, I, it could, they might've made that decision. Like we just don't care. We're doing this. I mean, it, it's, it's weird that that's a possibility because like, imagine having a movie like fast nine and saying, yeah, we're only going to put it on 20% of the screens. We're only going to put it on 20% of the screens. And what because about the other international lose? chains? I mean, <clears throat> How's that going to work? Well, I mean, they said they the deal with AMC only pertains to the AMC theaters in North America right now. They still have this says the story said that they still have to negotiate what it means for the overseas AMC theaters. But as a, another friend of mine in the in industry yesterday said, it doesn't matter. Once you put it out on VOD in one market, it's on VOD in every market because right. everybody in the world now knows how to use a VPN. And it's <laughs> if it's not going to get if it's not going to get um uh, pirated, which it'll, of course, it'll just get pirated. Uh, it's some people with VPNs are just going to get in. They're going to watch it. So once you put it on, on VOD, it's on VOD in the world, whether you yes. want it to or not. So it's, it's again, there's so many moving parts to this. I'm sure there's going to be a lot more for us to talk about this. Guys, the question for you is really when you look at the big picture, like I understand there's one way of looking at it very sh in a very short side way, but when you look at the big picture, what do you think about, number one, what do you think about this deal? But number two, is this deal even something that can actually happen when you've got things like Cineworld and Regal saying, cold day in hell, gentlemen, cold day in hell, we're not doing this. Does that put the brakes on it? Does it not? Does Universal say, as Rob said, damn the torpedoes and say, yep, even if it means none of the other theaters will play our movies, we're going to do this anyway to try to force them to do it? Or do you think if the other theaters stand strong that Universal is going to have to relent? I, I don't know. There's so many questions still. And I'm sure we're going to be talking about this a lot in the days to come. Jump down to the comment section below, guys, and let me know your thoughts. All right, guys, listen, we're going to head now into the live questions part of the show. I'm sure a lot of you guys have a lot of things to say about this topic, but we have reached Rob's got things he's got to do right now. So he's going to uh, uh, take off right now. Rob, thanks a lot for being here, man. We'll, of course, see you again here. But in the meantime, where can people find you and follow your adventures online? 
Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Burnett RM. Follow me on Instagram at Robert Meyer Burnett or come to my own YouTube channel, The Burnett Work and my show, Observations, the show about something. All right, dude. Thanks a lot for being here, man. And we will talk to you again soon. Absolutely. All right, guys. That's, that, of course, is the great Mr. Robert Meyer Burnett. And now let's move on to your greatness and the live questions you guys have been sending in. I'm going to turn on my AC here because it's starting to get warm in here. Uh, we're going to go over to your questions right now. And we are going to start with this. Why did that just suddenly come on? I didn't want that to come on. Let's move on to your live questions. And we're going to get things started here with Ryan or Evan Ryan, who writes, Hey, John, it upsets me that uh, it upsets me the thought that we might never see a Star Wars movie directed by Steven Spielberg. Your thoughts? I mean, listen, that I've always wanted that. You know, <clears throat> Steven Spielberg and George Lucas have a very tight relationship. Uh, that goes back decades and decades and decades and decades. Very few people understand George Lucas the way that Steven Spielberg does. I believe Steven Spielberg is the greatest filmmaker of all time. I have always wanted to see that. But yes, it has become apparent that we're never going to get a Steven Spielberg-directed Star Wars movie, which sucks, but hey, it is what it is. At least Steven Spielberg is still making uh, great movies on his own. Thanks a lot for writing that, Evan. Chase Lee writes, Upon reflecting uh, Dark Season 3, I can confidently say now Dark and Avatar are my favorite shows ever. Rarely do shows plan a whole show ahead of time, but Dark is one of those. The creators said they already knew what would happen in Season 3 while writing Season 1. I love it. Yeah, and it is rare. Like Some shows like Dark, some shows like uh, Babylon 5 do actually plan out the entire series. A lot of showrunners don't do that because they say that gets you in trouble because it leaves no room to breathe or let the show kind of take on a life of its own. But sometimes they do it and sometimes it works. Now, I'm only one episode into Dark. I finally took your guys' advice. I started watching Dark. I'm one episode in. I'm not going to lie. I'm not terribly thrilled so far, but I've had a few people tell me it takes a few episodes to get into it, so I'm going to keep going on it. But uh, a good point to raise there, Chase. All right, next up, Evil Rob writes, Hey, John, Rob, have you heard of the Dark Knight's Metal DC storyline? Unfortunately, Rob's not. Again, you sent, sent in this question before, and unfortunately, he's not here again. He had to split today. He had things he had to do for, uh, for a project he's working on, unfortunately. Uh, it sounds amazing. I would love to see it get the live-action treatment. Do you think that could even work? Has Rob convinced you to join Team Godzilla? Oh, no, Team Kong all the way, man. Team Kong all the way. But, uh, again, I have to give the same answer that I gave before, that I don't know what uh, Dark Knight's Metal is. I'm not familiar with it, so unfortunately I can't give an answer to that question. And normally, Rob would have been here till 11.30, but he had to ditch a little bit early today because of a project he's working on, unfortunately. Sorry about that, Evil Rob. Uh, but no, I'm still Team Kong all the way. All the way. All right, Willow writes, I was watching Arrival with my mom, and she didn't understand why Amy Adams' character still chose to have a child. What would you have done in that situation? Well, it's difficult to answer that without spoiling it for people who haven't seen Arrival, but listen, Arrival came out, what, six years ago? If you haven't seen Arrival by now, you're clearly not all that interested in Arrival. Okay, so I get it. Because look, all life ends, right? Is there joy in that life while it lasts is there joy in that life while it lasts and ultimately that was kind of my takeaway with amy adams's decision and what ultimately how arrival um resolved was i, I thought it was 
the decision that the joy that that life gave outweighed the pain of the ending of that life. At least that's my interpretation. We could talk to Denis Villeneuve who directed the film and he may say there was a totally different interpretation. That's fine. But that's kind of the way I see it, Will. That's just kind of the way I see it. Good question, though. All right. Bummy Smoochie writes, I've heard Harloff say that he'd, uh, that he'd like a Star Wars movie about Revan. Can you really make a movie about a video game avatar that is destined to win no matter whether he or she chooses good or evil? If you keep uh, Knights of the Old Republic context, Revan can't have a downfall. Here's the thing. They wouldn't keep the Knights of the Old Republic context, right? Look at the way they handled Grand Admiral Thrawn. And I'm not criticizing the way they handled Grand Admiral Thrawn, but the Grand Admiral Thrawn we got was completely different from the Thrawn trilogy novels, Right, the original Tron uh, 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 series novels. It's it's a completely different background. It's a completely different context. Hell, even in the new Star Wars novels and the show Rebels, Thrawn is completely different. Like the Thrawn we get in the new Thrawn novels, and the Thrawn we get in the Rebels series, even though they're supposed to be in the same universe, totally different characters. Totally different characters. My point is this. If they did Revan, yeah, if they did do Revan, expect them to change his background story and expect them to just, they'll take the character, maintain the character as true as they can to the personality of the character, but they'll totally change the context in the story. That's what I think they would probably end up doing with it. All right. Mike C writes, uh, hey, John, are you planning on playing Ghosts of Tsunami, Tsunama, uh, uh, Su... Tsushima, Ghost of Tsushima. I always mispronounce it wrong. Uh, it's kind of like a uh, mashup uh, between Red Dead and Assassin's Creed, but set in feudal Japan. I'm loving it so far. Amazing gameplay. Great world to explore. All right. Thanks for sending that in, man. And I'll tell you what, I'm actually not planning on playing that. I'm not personally planning on playing that. And I think the reason I'm not planning on playing that is because it is primarily... Uh, mostly, almost exclusively, uh, a console game. And I am I'm terrible at console games. I'm terrible. I'm going to see if I can get away here to get the... Uh, if I can get this back up on screen, guys. Give me a second. Yeah, I'm, I'm absolutely brutal when it comes to... Uh, um, when it comes to console games. I, I simply... I can't use a console controller. I mean, I want to be able to use a console controller, but I simply cannot. I wish I could but I can't. And that's just kind of the reality of uh, uh, me being me. I am terrible with console controllers and no matter how hard I try to, uh, to play the games and use the consoles to do it, I just really can't do it well. So uh, yeah, there's that. Sorry about that. Okay. Let's move on to our next question here. And I'm going to bring up full screen here. Our next question comes to us from uh, where are we at? Uh, oh, Mike C. also writes part two. Also, I thought of an idea that I at least think is cool. Uh, what about a dynamic aspect ratio TV? The TV is normally set at 16 by 9, but when you watch a film, the TV widens to 2.39, and if you watch an older seri series, it narrows to 4.3, no more black bars. That seems to me like an awful lot of trouble for no good reason. Like, do you know how expensive it would be to have a television that physically... Physically, like if it goes to widescreen, the physical television stretches out physically uh, to a whole different aspect ratio. That seems to me to be really, really 
prohibitive. And then when it wants to go to a four by three, the sides shrink in like the physical television shrinks to this way and it climbs a little bit tall. I, I, I think that would be incredibly cost prohibitive and really solving a problem that doesn't really exist. Um, so I, I think that would be problematic, Mike. I got to say, I think that would probably be kind of interesting thinking, but I think it would be a little bit problematic. All right. Next up here, uh, Chris Shobras uh, writes. Hey, buddy. Hope all is well. Thank you so much, man. But can we just take a moment to appreciate the career of John Favreau? What that man has done for film and now TV is nothing short of amazing. Elf, The Jungle Book, The Lion King, which I loved, and now The Mandalorian. Um, yeah, listen, John Favreau, you know, I'm working on a documentary right now, and it's brought up in the documentary that, you know, before Iron Man, more specifically, before the trailer for Iron Man, at Comic-Con back in 2009. I can't remember when it was. John Favreau was primarily known as an actor and all this kind of stuff. But when that trailer dropped, all of a sudden, John Favreau was better known as a director. And he is still, I still think he's a good actor. I like seeing him in things. But you're right. He is a great director. He's a visionary director. Um, and... Uh, I think he should be the next guy, honestly, as a executive, as a producer. I think John Favreau is the right guy to take over Kathleen Kennedy's job and be the next head of Lucasfilm. You know, he's just done an, such an incredible job as an executive over The Mandalorian, as a producer over The Mandalorian, not directing it himself. Instead, he works, he gathered in the right group of directors, made sure he passed on his vision to them. You know, uh, Dave Filoni said, I needed John Favreau here to teach me because I know nothing about making this. This was Dave Filoni saying this in the Mandalorian series. I don't know squat about making live action. I have no idea what I'm doing. Thank God I had John Favreau here to mentor me. I mean, that's what you want in an executive running something, right? So I, I think he should be that guy. And yeah, he uh, he needs to be more appreciated than he even is. All right. Uh, Michael C. writes. The only reason HBO Max and Peacock are not on Roku right now is that they don't think it's worth the price Roku is asking. That seems like a sound business decision. It's not. Uh, if they have a show people want to watch, people will get the channel another way. Really? I, I think the facts have proved that that's not true. It's like a brand new, you know, in Las Vegas, there's a brand new football stadium. They're just finishing building right now. It looks amazing. But it's like them saying, you know what? We don't like the cost of electricity. We don't we don't like how much electricity costs. We're not going to have electricity. We'll just try to play our games in the daytime. You know, so we don't have to pay for electricity. That's idiotic. I mean, that's the cost of doing business. And you know, I it's saying, oh, you know, they're they're fine without it. No, they're not. Look, HBO, the reason HBO made HBO Max was to get a whole new influx of new subscribers and new money and new lifeblood and all that kind of stuff. They were hoping for like a 25% jump in their HBO subscriptions. What did they get? 5%. 5% growth. You think they went through all of that with developing HBO Max and doing all this kind of stuff for 5% growth? No, man, they wanted way more than that. You think Peacock wanted to launch with like one-tenth the launch numbers of a Disney Plus? They didn't want that. 
they were barely had bigger launch numbers than Quibi. And if you don't think one, not the only reason, but if you don't think that one of the major reasons that HBO Max had such a sluggish start and that um, uh, Peacock had such a sluggish start, if you don't think one of the main reasons, not the only one, but one of the main reasons for that sluggish start isn't because of the fact that they aren't on the two biggest streaming platforms in the world, Roku and Amazon Fire Stick, that's not good business. Yeah, it's going to cost you a little bit because Roku and Amazon Fire have spent hundreds of millions of dollars over the years building that platform that you now get to come in and put your content on. And yeah, maybe they're asking for a bit of money, but that's the cost of doing business. Just like the new stadium in Las Vegas has got to pay for electricity. You may not like the price of electricity, but that's the cost of doing business. And I think the fact that HBO Max and uh, Peacock are off to such sluggish starts when something like AMC or um, uh, Disney Plus came out with fireworks. Again, not the only reason, but one of those main reasons is Disney Plus was on all the platforms. And HBO Max and Peacock weren't on the two biggest stream, the two platforms that represent 70% of streaming. 70% is represented in Roku and Amazon Fire Stick. I don't care if you had to pay a couple extra bucks more. You got to be on those platforms if you want to succeed. That's so what they did. No, I, I don't consider that good business sense. That is not a sound business decision. That is a poor business decision. And uh, they need to, to smarten up. They need to smarten up quick. Anyway, uh, thanks for writing that in, Michael. Appreciate your perspective on that. Um, David Dilks writes, one thing I never understood about Disney Star Wars is that they refused to recast Carrie Fisher for an important role in The Rise of Skywalker. Uh, but they were also fine without Harrison Ford in the unimportant Solo movie. Isn't that backwards? Well, I mean, but they were different things, right? The, the, the Solo movie, which never should have been made. I like the movie, but it never should have been made. That required a different actor because now you're talking about Harrison or you're talking about Han Solo being literally... 50 years younger than Harrison Ford currently is. So that made sense. The Princess Leia Carrie Fisher thing, I never agreed with. You know, and I took a lot of heat for this, but I don't care. The right decision to properly honor Carrie Fisher and all that kind of stuff, the right decision was to, uh, or would have been to um, recast the role of Princess Leia. Instead, in The Rise of Skywalker, we got these weird, awkward scenes with Princess Leia because she was reading lines that were meant for another movie. And they were just trying to shoehorn and kind of force it in. And it felt awkward and out of place and weird because they were seen shot for another movie. Not this movie. And I always felt the proper way to honor Carrie Fisher was to say, don't worry, Carrie, we'll make sure the ball gets across the goal line for you. We will pick up the ball for you and we will take it across and we will give this character, this Princess Leia character that you spent a lifetime representing. We're going to make sure your Princess Leia character gets finished the right way in the best storytelling possible and in the best way possible. And we're going to go out and hire one of the best actresses in the world I mean, Carrie Fisher and Meryl Streep were like really close friends. I'm just saying. Or somebody else, whatever. And make, make 
make Princess Leia's character relevant to the movie with dialogue and scenes that were actually written for this movie. I still feel that would have been the best way. And to this day, I still feel like I get it. There's a real sentimentality of taking the old footage of Carrie Fisher and trying to force it into this one. I get the sentimentality of that, but I don't think that ultimately ended up honoring Carrie Fisher. Their intention was to honor Carrie Fisher, and I respect that. But ultimately, making awkward scenes with Princess Leia wasn't the best way to honor Carrie Fisher. The best way to honor Carrie Fisher is to say, you know what? In your name, Carrie, we're going to honor this character you spent a lifetime representing, and we're going to make sure this character gets across the finish line. Don't you worry. We got your back. That would have been the best way to me to, to do it, but they went another way. And, and, you know, different people have different opinions on that, and I respect that. All right, next up. Uh, that was David. Next up, Major Tom writes, <coughs> pardon me, guys. Uh, hey, John, hope things are well. Here's my guilty pleasure movie of the day, Double Dragon, <laughs> uh, with Robert Patrick, his hairdo in the movie, and Marcos uh, de Coscos. Uh, the movie is insane. Good? No. Crazy? Uh, yeah. Robert Patrick steals the show in every... You know, I got to tell you, that is... You know what? That is a great definition, Major Tom. That is a great definition of a guilty pleasure movie. Because you know what? To call something a guilty pleasure means that you're acknowledging a lot of other people don't like it. That's a guilty pleasure. You're recognizing, hey, a lot of people don't like this and they probably don't like it for good reasons. But it still means something to me. See, my guilty pleasure is Armageddon. Everybody bashes on Armageddon. And I get why. I do. I get why people bash on Armageddon. I do. But it doesn't change the fact that I love it. I love Armageddon. And so I proudly call that movie a guilty pleasure. I know a ton of people don't like it. And I recognize that there's good reason that they don't like it. But it still does for me. That's a guilt. See, some people, they say, I got a guilty pleasure movie. And they mention like an Academy Award winning movie. It's like, that's not a guilty pleasure. A guilty pleasure is one that... You know, a lot of people don't like, and even you would acknowledge there's a lot of reasons not to like it. So I respect your choice there, Major Tom. I respect your choice. All right, next up, Ben Rayner writes. And Ben sends in $20. Thank you so much for supporting the channel on that level, Ben. I appreciate that, man. Uh, ben writes, hey, John. Well, yesterday I finally watched Serenity. Excellent, excellent, excellent movie. For the first time, I've seen Firefly before, but never saw Serenity. And wow, it was great. Fun and epic, a great villain, and through themselves, uh, and uh, and through themselves were awesome and fun like always. Loved this film, eight out of ten. Dude, I loved that movie, Serenity. One of the great things about Serenity was you could watch Serenity even if you had never seen Firefly. You get a lot more out of it if you had seen Firefly. But even if you hadn't seen Firefly, one of what Whedon did with that movie. And the way he set it all up that, hey, he understood if you watch the show, you're going to get so much out of this. But even if you've never seen Firefly, you can still watch this movie. It was fresh. It was original. It was one of the best sci-fi movies I've seen in the last 15 years. I love that movie. And it introduced me to one of my favorite actors in the world, Chiwetel Ejiofor, who played the operative um, in that movie. He was the, one of the best on-screen villains of the past 15, 20 years. Seriously. I, I remember talking two or three years ago about like my top five or top 10 when I had done stuff like that, like favorite movie villains of the past 20 years. And I put Chiwetel Ejiofor as the operative on that list. He was so menacing in that. Mm. And one of my favorite Mal lines 
one of my absolute favorite Mal lines. Captain Mal, he's like, uh, you know, he's saying he's going to go on this rescue mission, but he turns to the girl and says, now listen, if I'm not back in 15 minutes, you come rescue me. I mean, it was just, it was so beautiful. Fillion delivered that line so great. I love that movie. Guys, if you've not seen Serenity, do yourself a favor. Go watch what good storytelling can do in a sci-fi movie, even one that has a really low budget. It, it's fantastic. I absolutely freaking love Serenity. I'm glad you got had a chance to see that, Ben. All right. Uh, KHMPH writes, John, I recently found your channel and I can't stop watching. Oh, thanks so much, man. It's good to have you here. I've been doing a deep dive into your previous vids. You are awesome. Thank you so much. Uh, you've mentioned you're a fan of the series Supernatural, insanely. Uh, as a fan, how do you think the series should end? Well, yeah, I, I love Supernatural. I have followed this show. I think I got on board with it when it was in season three. I think Supernatural was into season three when I started watching it. And it it just it just hit all the right buttons for me. Like, I, I really had fun. You know, the key thing for me about that show has... My favorite thing about the show isn't even the stories that they've got going on season to season. Although I do like the stories. I just love the characters. You know, I just love tuning in every week and hanging out with Sam and Dean for an hour. And whether it's Sam and Dean and Castiel or Sam and Dean and Crowley or Sam and Dean and Bobby or, or Lilith or whatever, or Chuck, I've just really enjoyed hanging out with these characters. Now, last season... The season finale was the first episode of Supernatural that I truly hated. I hated the season finale last year. And I, I don't like what they're doing with Chuck this year. You know, you had Chuck as this one way the all 14 years and all of a sudden you changed what you're making Chuck. And that did not sit well with me. I still don't kind of like I, I'm, I'm enjoying this season, even though I don't like what they're doing with Chuck. How should it end? I think it should end with um, with with them with the story not ending. I think it should end with the story not ending. I thought we should. I think we should get to a place where they resolve their issues with Chuck, whether you know they they bring Chuck back to the good side or whether something. I don't know. But there are still monsters in the world, and it's still their job to go out and fight, fight monsters. I that's why I don't want it to end with a happily ever after like. I want a happy ending, but I don't want it to be a, and now Sam and Dean go and live in Hawaii and just hang out on the beach all day. It's like, no, the, the, the mission goes on. We're still going to fight monsters and that's where it ends. I would love for them to do that. That's how I would like to see it at end, but we'll see what the storytellers have in mind. All right. Thanks for that. Uh, K, uh, KC and thanks for being here, man. All right. Ryan Loner writes, if you're wondering where, you know, Dark's theme song from, it was used in one of the best scenes of Breaking Bad in season four finale uh, about all I can say uh, without spoilers. It was pretty neat to discover it actually has lyrics. I, I, I'll be honest with you. I did not recognize the, uh, the music in Dark. I didn't recognize. So I had no idea it played elsewhere. And listen, I'll be honest with you too. Other than the main theme. Other than the main theme, I don't reckon I, I can't remember any of the music from Breaking Bad. I don't even remember the names of episodes for most shows. I, of course, I remember The Fly, but um, but I do not. But I'll tell you what, though. Thanks for throwing in that little bit of trivia. I will keep my ears open for that moving forward. Thanks for that, Brian Loner. All right. Next up, Murray Reich writes, will Regal and other big chains protest AMC's move on Universal? Well, we've already seen that, haven't we? We've already seen that. 
Uh, because this changes the scope for movies forever. What happens when theaters can't take some profit from certain movies like Star Wars in the first two weeks? This is something to be concerned about. You know what, Murray? You raise a great point that I didn't discuss earlier. Like right now, like movie theaters only keep a fraction of what the box office makes. In the first week or two, they make an even smaller amount. Like sometimes movies come out where the movie theaters don't keep any of the box office for the first week. That's not normal. It's not normal. But there are times when a big movie has come out and the theaters get to keep 0% of the box office for the first weekend. Sometimes it's like 10, 10% they get to keep the first weekend, 15%. Now, by the time a movie gets to week five and six, the movie theaters are keeping 50, 60, 70% of the box office, but hardly anybody is going to see those movies in weeks five, six, and seven. You know what I mean? So... If we're saying the theatrical window is only going to be three weekends, well, what does that do to the box office? Like, does do the theater still only keep like 10, 15, 20 percent of the opening weekend of the box office? Well, if you're only going to have your thing open for three weeks, what does that do? It's again, it is another reason why. And for those of you who missed us talking about this earlier, uh, you know, Murray's asking, won't other theater chains chime in on this? They already have. Cineworld, the owners of Regal, they're their own major cinema chain, but they also own Regal here in North America. They've come out and said, cold day in hell. This business thing that AMC is trying to do with Universal makes no sense. We do not see any business sense in this model that AMC is trying to do. So we're already seeing them reply. Like I said, I kind of expect that by the end of the day, and maybe they already have already, but I'm just kind of caught in doing the show right now. By the end of the day, or maybe by the end of tomorrow, we're, I think we're going to hear a lot more <coughs> people in the theater industry speak out about this. I'm, I'm certainly anticipating a response from NATO, how one of their own major members, AMC, have just backstabbed all of them. So it's, it's going to be interesting to see how the rest of them respond to this. So we'll keep our eyes on that, Murray. Excellent, excellent question. All right, next up, uh, an anonymous viewer writes, so let me get this straight. So baseball is being played. <laughs> so baseball is being played um, uh, despite not being in a bubble like the NBA is. They then get a team that had 14 players test positive, which affected a couple of teams' schedules. But theaters can't reopen even with all the safety guidelines in place. Hey, listen, you know my position on this. I believe that while there is no way to eliminate risk, I believe with a cooperative public that there are procedures and safety protocols you can have in place that greatly reduces the risk of going into a restaurant or going into uh, a movie theater or going into whatever, right? I believe there are ways to do that. Now, look, I still want everybody to be safe. And if you're, if there are areas that the outbreak is super bad, that you're not even opening restaurants or anything like that, okay, maybe not be in theaters. But I think if you can be in a restaurant, you can be in a movie theater if you're following the right safety protocol. So I agree with you on that, man. I totally agree with you. Like, if you're having baseball, why can't you have this? Anyway, so, yeah, I'm 100% with you on that, man. All right, uh, next up, we go to uh, the same anonymous viewer who writes, 
Movie theaters have a better chance of staying open than indoor dining. I agree. At least theaters have safety guidelines in place in all locations compared to restaurants that are privately owned and take risks into their own hands. Just my opinion. Well, listen, and to your point, you know, when restaurants open back up here in Los Angeles, Ann and I love going out to eat. And we went out to eat a few times, but there are restaurants we avoided when we got there and saw, oh, they're not spacing out the tables. They're not requiring people to wear a mask coming in and they don't have hand sanitizer available for everybody at the front desk. We're not going to go in there. I'm not saying everybody else had to do that. I'm not saying boycott that, but I'm saying Ann and I for ourselves and our choices. Like to me, that's a sign that this restaurant is not taking the safety of its customers seriously. And so we would go to another restaurant where they, they took out half of their tables. They distanced the tables like six or seven, eight feet apart sometimes They required us to apply hand sanitizer coming in. They required us to have masks on when we entered and whenever we weren't at our table. And they took a temperature check. They pointed the old temperature laser gun to our heads, took a temperature check of everybody coming in. Again, that doesn't eliminate the risk, but it reduces the risk significantly. And so Ann and I would avoid bars or, or, or any restaurant that showed they weren't taking this seriously. And we would go to a restaurant and we only went a couple of times, but we would go to a restaurant that showed they were taking it seriously. That's just our choice. And if movie theaters open back up, if a movie theater does not show that they're taking this thing seriously and not taking safety protocol seriously, I'm not going to go to that theater. It's just that simple. I'll, I'll travel. I'll get in a car and drive somewhere to go to a theater that is showing that they are taking it seriously and they're going to take the right safety precautions. Otherwise, I'll wait. But that's just me. Everybody else is going to have their own sort of thing. But that's kind of my uh, my approach to that uh, anonymous. Thanks for writing that in. All right. REA writes, hey, guys, yesterday you mentioned the Mandalorian getting Emmy nominations, which is an is amazing thing for us genre junkies. I'd also like to hear your thoughts on Watchmen getting 26 Emmy nominations. Thanks and stay safe. I'll be honest with you. I'm not. Uh, ter- now, there were a couple of big nominations, for instance, um, Jeremy Irons got nominated for best actor in a limited series. And I believe also got best lead actress in a limited series. So, so those ones are impressive. Here's the thing. I was stunned when I found out that Netflix got 160 nominations. HBO got 106 nominations. I I think it was 106. Point is, do you know how many categories there are? I mean, there's over, it seems like there's over 100 categories. And there's literally, I was like, for instance, Mandalorian has 15 nominations, including a nomination for the top prize, best drama series, right? That's their top prize, best drama series. But it had 14 other nominations and I was reading through the other nominations and it's like best use single camera of half hour show. I'm like, really? So they have best use of a single camera in a half hour show, best use of single camera in an hour long show, best three camera in a half hour show, best three camera in a a multi camera. It's like there are so many categories that... I'll be honest with you. I, I hear Mandalorian gets 15 nominations. I'm not terribly impressed. I am impressed by the nomination it got, which is best series. I am impressed 
for like Watchmen that got best lead actor and best lead actress nominations. But like all the other ones there, it's like such minutia of technicality that I don't know how impressed or not impressed to be. I'm not crap talking on the, on the Emmys, by the way, I'm not crap talking. I'm just saying, unlike the Oscars where there's like 21 categories, the Emmys have like over a hundred. So it's weird to know how impressed to be, by multiple nominations when I don't even know what most of those categories are. And anyway, that's just that's just kind of my take on it. Uh, but I do love the fact that it did get those two big nominations for sure. All right. Toasty writes, you're right about dark. It's a slow burn. I started it six months ago and dropped off two episodes in. Thanks to the Campia community, I finally pushed myself to season two. It still hasn't hooked me yet, but I hope it will by the end of season three. Well, you know what, Toasty? That's one of the great things about people recommending recommending movies and shows here is that it's not just me it's when you make a recommendation you're recommending it to everybody in the community and everybody can go check it out and i'm not the only person that started watching dark because so many of you have been writing into the show saying watch dark watch dark watch dark other people have started watching dark because of your encouragement and like i said i was not blown away by the first episode of dark but I'm going to put keep pushing because so many of you guys say, yeah, it takes a little while for it to find its footing, but keep going. You're going to be happy that you did. So I'm going to take your word for it. I'm going to keep watching. Uh, but uh, but yeah, it's not just me who hears your guys' recommendations. So thanks for writing that, uh, that in, Toasty. All right, next up, Superman Steve writes, John, I have to share this exciting news with you. On uh, 13-8, I don't know what 13-8 is. Is that August 13th? Usually I put the month first. Anyway, uh, I'm going to be watching. I'm, I'm assuming that's August 13th. I'm going to be watching Star Wars A New Hope for the first time in my life in a cinema. Uh, VMAX, Dolby Atmos. Man, I am so pumped. Dude, that is great. Anne and I are going tonight to go see Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse at, uh, at the drive-in. I thought it was going to be last Wednesday. It's actually this Wednesday. So Anne and I are going to a drive-in tonight. Listen, again, with all the crap happening because of the covid pandemic you know for for some of us there's a really nice little uh there's a nice little glimmer of hope there's a nice little silver lining which is getting to see you know in those areas where movie theaters are open and they need content so they're playing some of these old classics that's one of the great things being able to see these movies as god and nature intended in a movie theater on the big screen the way it was meant to be seen getting to see these movies that maybe you might have thought we'd never get to see on the big screen again again it doesn't make up for everything else but it is a nice little silver lining superman steve and i'm super thrilled that you get uh, that you got to score tickets to that and you get to do that in your area that's awesome man all right jason ashcroft writes Hey, John, just finished my first semester of film school. That's awesome, dude. Congratulations. Up at the University of Utah. If it wasn't for you, I'm not sure I would be in this position right now. Thank you for your inspiring words. Also, what are your thoughts on House of Cards? All right. Well, first of all, man, congratulations. Everybody can whine and complain about what they want to do. It's the exceptional people who step up and actually do it. And you're actually you're finishing your first thing in film school. That is awesome. That's, you know, that's huge because you're the 1%. 99% of the rest of us just sit on our asses. It's the 1% that actually get up, put in the work and do what they need to do to pursue their dreams. So good on you for doing that. What do I think about House of Cards? Um, <clears throat> I really like the first couple of seasons of House of Cards or to at least the North American version. As a matter of fact, I loved the first couple of seasons of House of Cards. Loved it. 
That was fantastic. It started to wane for me a bit. It, it started to wane for me a little bit near the end. And I never did watch the final season. Like after the whole Kevin Spacey thing. And you know, to be fair, I wasn't punishing the show for what Kevin Spacey did by not watching the final season because he's not even in the final season. I had just kind of, I think by the end of that last season that I saw, I think I was just done with it. So regardless of the Kevin Spacey situation, I don't know that I would have watched the final season anyway. But again, the first couple of seasons, loved it. But uh, then I, I eventually kind of got, I thought it waned in quality later on. But that was just my thing. But yeah, I, I did love the first few seasons. All right, Old Man Playing Rights. Universal AMC deal. Remember Napster? Much like Napster, this deal will probably fail. However, much like Napster led to changes in the music industry, this deal is foreshadowing of changes coming to the film industry. I'm not really sure about that. <clears throat> I'm not sure about that. Because there's only so many ways that this can go. Like, here's the thing. One of the reasons back in the days of Napster that people like me were screaming at the movie industry to adopt digital purchasing of music and the ability to buy individual songs and all that kind of stuff. One of the reasons we were all pushing for that is because not just because it was good for us, the consumer, but it was going to make the move, the music industry so much money that dude, like the ability to buy individual songs. Some people may not buy drop 12 bucks or whatever to buy an album when there's only one or two songs on there that they want, but they'll, drop two bucks to buy an individual song. The thing is, <coughs> we wanted them to make that change because it was good for us, but it was also good for the industry. It was going to make them all kinds of money. That's a different situation than what we have in the movie industry. Uh, the type of changes that Universal wants, Disney knows is bad for the movie industry, not just the movie theater industry. Studios like Warner Brothers and Disney, they know this is bad for the industry. And, and I agree with them. I agree with Cineworld and I agree with Regal and I agree with Disney. I, I think this is bad for the industry as a whole. And if it's bad for the industry as a whole, ultimately it's going to be bad for us as consumers. Look, here's an interesting thing. Think about this. Disney Plus launched in November of 1999. 1999. In November... Of 2019. Really? Disney Plus launched in 1999? Yeah. Okay, so Disney launched in November of 2019. Or 1999. Whatever. In 2019. We are now about to be in August. Right? So December, January, February, March, April, May, June, July, August. We're talking nine months. And we still have only gotten one piece of premium Highly anticipated content. Hamilton, different thing. Uh, I guess we can say two. Well, let's count Hamilton. Two pieces of premium, high quality, highly anticipated pieces of content. We've only gotten two in nine months. And all the rest of it, all the other things that Disney has put up on Disney Plus, low cost, inexpensive programming you know, wood shop or workshop, whatever they call it. Uh, be our guest, the little cooking show hosted by Angela from the office. I like that show by it's a nice little show. Don't get me wrong, but there's a reason why 
in nine months. And even if you take the pandemic out of it, they had been around for five months and we had only gotten one piece of premium content in five months that Disney Plus launched. Everything else was this lower budget, you know, just kind of cranking it out, wood, uh, you know, windmill, uh, you know, conveyor belt kind of stuff. There's a reason for that. <clears throat> My fear is, I think what we've seen there with Disney Plus is what's going to become of the movie industry. It's going to be like, yeah, you know, every year they'll, they'll put out the one thing that we really, really, really want to see. And the rest is going to be this garbage filler. I mean, that's the same is true of Netflix, man. I mean, for every one piece of really high quality stuff that we all love, there's about 15 pieces of just filler that they just crank out to say they've got original content. And, and I worry about that. I worry about that. Now, look, what, what, what is absolutely true is that change is inevitable. Change is 100% inevitable. And that includes the theater industry and the movie industry as a whole. But the changes have to be changes that still work for us as consumers and work for the industry to make sure we as consumers are getting the best product possible. With Napster and music... That assured that it was a good deal for the consumer and it was a new paradigm that ensured that we were going to get the best product and the, and the, uh, you know, the record labels were making money, the artists were making money, the consumers were getting good stuff. The changes that happen in the movie industry, and there are changes coming for sure, but they have to be changes that accomplish that same goal. And I'm just not sure that this paradigm uh, that universal envisions is going to be the thing that does that. All right, let's keep moving here. I don't get likes rights. Um, is Kevin Feige, if Kevin Feige, you probably meant, if Kevin Feige left Marvel and told Warner Brothers he wanted to head the DCEU, do you think they would let him or have him still be under the Walter guy? That's Walter Hamada. Um, that's that's going to be the easiest question of the day. They would instantly give the job to Kevin to Kevin Feige. And there wouldn't be any discussion about it. They would give it to him immediately. <clears throat> it's like me doing uh, the John Campia show, right? It's like me doing the John Campia show. Let's say I had a board of governors um, that was kind of oversaw the John Campia. Let's say I had a board of directors that oversaw the John Campia show. I do a good job running the John Campia show. I do. They like the job that I do. We have some success here. Great. Make no mistake about it. If Ryan Reynolds came along, who is far more entertaining, has a far bigger personality and all that. If Ryan Reynolds came along and said to the board of directors of the John Campia show, I'd like to host the John Campia show. Guess what? Tomorrow, the John Campia show would be called the Ryan Reynolds show. That's just the way it is. Because that's clearly a big step up. Um, so, yeah, I, I think, look, Walter Hamada has done a great job. I love the job Walter Hamada has done over there. I really do. But if Kevin Feige comes along and says, hey, I'm leaving Marvel. I'd like to, you know, give myself a new challenge with the DC universe. I'd like to come and take over the DC properties for you guys. Warner Brothers would give it to him like that. And that's no disrespect to Walter Hamada. There's no disrespect to him at all. If anything, it's an acknowledgement and an honor. So it's like, dude, if you were going to be replaced by anybody, it's going to be the most successful film executive in the history of the business. 
That's a little bit of a badge of honor. So it's no disrespect on Hamada at all. I, at least I don't think so. Okay, anyway, that's just my thought on that. All right, uh, Ryan writes, Hey, John, there's two upcoming UFC fights I can't wait for. We get Adesanya, the style bender, versus Costa, September 14th, and now officially Habib Nurmagomedov, versus, uh, who is the greatest of all time, versus uh, Justin Gaethje on October 24th. What are your picks? I'll tell you what, I think the closer fight out of those two is going to be style bender versus Costa. I think that's going to be the closer fight. I'm still picking Stylebender. I'm still picking Israel to win that fight, but I don't feel real. Costa's an animal, man. He's a beast. <coughs> so I would put five bucks on Stylebender, but I would not put 50. You know what I mean? So I'm picking Israel, but it's it's he's he's got a big he's got a big job ahead of him there he's got a big job ahead of him there Gaethje I believe poses the most legitimate threat to Nurmagomedov that he has ever faced uh Habib I think this is going to be the the biggest challenge Habib has ever faced he's still going to win he's still going to win I feel like I would put 50 bucks on Habib winning that fight. I wouldn't put 100 bucks on it because Justin Gaethje is a maestro of violence. He is the maestro of violence. He is awesome. I love Justin Gaethje. He's going he's gonna to prove to be a problem for Habib, but I would still – Habib is the greatest of all time. The only question for me is this. The eagle that's Habib just lost his father – who was also his lifelong head coach. He just lost his father and his head coach a number of weeks ago. Uh, Habib's dad died, who was also for his entire life. He's the guy who taught Habib everything he knows. He's been his head coach this whole time. <clears throat> How's that going to affect him? I don't know. I, I mean, no excuses, but something like that, losing your dad and your coach. That could affect him. And maybe, maybe I'm not saying we will. I'm just saying maybe we could see a different Nurmagomedov than we've ever seen before, who's maybe not the same guy. Maybe. That could open the door for Gaethje a little bit. Perhaps. Maybe. Possibly. Don't know. Uh, we'll have to wait and see. But, I mean, right now, right now we just don't know. And we will have to wait and see. All right. Let's keep things going here. Uh, next up, we've got uh, the Sock Rights. I think if G4, which we just talked about the other day, G4 is, uh, is coming back. J G4 is coming back. I think if G4 can uh, feature vetted YouTubers as special guests, that would do really well for them. They could do it once a week or even once a day, depending on how they format it. More importantly, they have to distinguish themselves from IGN because... Um, from, from IGN because uh, they've dominated the entertainment news medium for a while now. So much so that I recall they used to have competitor that I believe was on equal footing with them for almost, uh, or almost was, and now I can't even remember the name of the company. Well, there's a lot of leading voices right now. Anyway, also, I really hope that they don't do any of those scripted jokes IGN does. You know the ones, and yes, they are that bad. Don't lie to yourself, because it really just turned me off from their videos. Also, they need some someone equally as good as Kevin or Chris. All right. Um, so for again, for those of you who didn't hear, 
G4 is coming back, which is great. And even it's, it's precursor tech TV and all that kind of stuff. The days of, you know, Leo Laporte. I still watch Leo Laporte quite a bit on his YouTube stuff and on his podcasting network. I like Leo Laporte a lot. I'm really into tech stuff. But back in the days of Leo Laporte and uh, Kevin Piera and, and uh, Olivia Munn and, you know, all the everybody else who was involved with that. Uh, Morgan and, you know, uh, the video game stuff. It's coming back. I'm going to disagree with you, Sock. I don't think they should bring in YouTubers. Not that there's anything wrong with YouTubers. I'm a YouTuber. But because I think they need to differentiate themselves from YouTube. You know, when Rob and I were talking about the return of G4 the other day, one of the things that we both mentioned was the fact that, hey, unlike back when G4 used to be on the air, now there's a huge thing of competition and it's not IGN. It's YouTube because you've got, and it's Twitch because like you want gaming content. Guess what? Twitch is nothing but gaming content. There are tons of YouTubers with hundreds of thousands, in some cases, millions of subscribers that, that cover gaming content. You want tech stuff? Guess what? You got MKBHD out there and you got Leo Laporte and you got Linus Tech Tips and you've got the Everyday Dad and you've got you know, Pocket Now, and you've got all these tech things out there they are competing with. It's not IGN they got to worry about. It's YouTube. And by extension, Twitch. That's what they've got to worry about. And I think what they really have to do is strongly differentiate themselves from that. I actually think bringing on YouTubers or whatever, I think that will be a detriment to them. Not because there's anything wrong with YouTubers, but because they need to really stand out. Uh, whether they're going to be able to do that or not, not 100% sure, but I at least think that's what they've got to aim for. I think that's what they've got to aim for. So we'll, we'll have to wait and see. Thanks for writing that in, man. I am excited to see G4 return if they can bring it back right. It's a big challenge, but I'm excited for it. I used to love tech TV and G4 and all that kind of crap. Anyway, go for Joe writes. How do you think movies, <coughs> pardon me, how do you think movies and TV will address the pandemic in the future? Will they acknowledge it or ignore it? 9-11 hasn't been brought up much in media. Oh, dude, it absolutely has. 9-11 is mentioned all the time in media anyway. But because this affects everyone, do you think it'll be more prominent in future stories? Yes. Like, listen, we only have so many shows and movies about 9-11, but 9-11 is mentioned all the time in television and movies and, you know, it's oh, the, the events always now. Yeah. There's, there, but there's only so many movies you can make about nine 11, right? It was, you know, one of the most infamous days in human history, but it was one day and it affected a certain number of people in a certain way. It affected the whole world in many ways. And it's mentioned all the time, the pandemic, which is affecting the globe. And it's going on five months now if not longer, um, yeah, it'll be referenced. There, there will be some things that will be made specifically about the pandemic, much like there were things made specifically about 9-11. But outside of that, yes, I think you're going to see a lot of references in television shows and movies moving forward, even if it's just passing references to the lockdown, the quarantine, the pandemic, whatever. Yeah, I expect we're going to see a lot of that because like, I, I still hear to this day a lot of references at least to 9-11. I think we're going to get a lot of that about, about the pandemic and some things that will be specifically about it. 
Actually, I remember already hearing about a movie that's being produced right now about a heist movie during the pandemic. And the pandemic is set as the background to this heist movie. It's going to play an integral part. So it's already happening. And I do expect we'll see that moving forward as well. Maybe not on the same same level as 9-11, but I do think we're going to see that uh, continue on moving forward as well. All right. Dave Atkins writes. Hey, Gio McFilthy. Well, hello there, Dave. Of course, my real name is Giovanni. Uh, wanted to give a massive shout out to Special Effect, a UK-based gaming charity doing amazing things, enabling uh, disabled people. Oh, I have heard. I was going to say, I've never heard of Special Effect, but now, now I know what you're talking about. Uh, enabling disabled people worldwide to play video games in various ways, Xbox, adaptive controllers, etc. You should check out this work. I, I never knew the name of them, but I have seen specials on this before. And it's amazing stuff they do. Like they make like um, apparatus and, and basically technology stuff to give accessibility to the world of video gaming to people with disabilities. It's awesome. I never knew the name was Special Effect. I, I never knew that. But I have seen um, editorials on this company and what they're doing and the stuff that they create for these. I think that's awesome. Anything that gives access to people who otherwise would be shut off to those things, I think is one of the greatest things you can do. And the fact that they're doing, and you might say, ah, oh, it's just video games. Hey, listen, you say that because it's easy for you and I to pick up and play a video game the way it's designed to be played. That's easy. You know, like, if you're somebody who's got a restriction like that, to have those doors opened, I think that's awesome. And I heard testimonies from people who have disabilities that were able to enjoy those products. I think that's awesome. I think that's great that you gave him a shout out. Thank you for that, Dave. I appreciate that. All right. Dave Atkins also writes, uh, curious if you listen to Beck at all. I, I honestly, actually, I don't. Um, he is hands down my favorite musician of all time. His ability to tackle funk, soul, blues, rock, and many other genres uh, with his far out there, sarcastic lyrics and amazing sound melodies is nothing short of sublime. I got to admit, I have never been into Beck. Not that I dislike Beck. Don't don't misinterpret me. I'm not saying I dislike Beck. I'm just saying I never got into Beck and I couldn't tell you the name of one Beck song. And, and that's coming from some guy, from a dude who used to play in bands when I was younger. I never really did get into Beck and his stuff. So I, I have no idea from it, but I know a lot of people who are totally into Beck. So you are completely not, not alone in that, Dave. Thanks for bringing that up. All right, Santos Ramirez writes, Hey, John and friends, I got a question about the Emmys. What is meant by lead actor in a limited series or movie? Because bad education, could they put it up for an Oscar? This may be a dumb question. I am so curious about this. Listen, the topic about movies that are on Netflix or Hulu or Amazon Prime or HBO, should those be Emmy or should those be Oscars? And listen, in the Academy itself, there's still a lot of discussion about that. Look, Netflix is a streamed television service. So there are those who argue that if you make a movie for television, just like through all of television history, CBS has always had their movie of the week. NBC has made movies exclusively for NBC and all that kind of stuff. And those have never been Oscar eligible. They've always been for the Emmys. You honor those movies at the Emmys because they're television. So there's there's still an ongoing discussion today about what do we do with movies that are movies, but they're meant for television. Traditionally, those have always been the category of the Emmys. So shouldn't that be the place where those movies get honored? 
Or do they get honored at the Oscars, which is traditionally meant for movies that play theatrically? So it's still a discussion going on. I still think they're feeling it out. Um, so I don't know. It's a good question. What's it like? Why wasn't Bad Education? Why is Bad Education able to be considered for an Emmy when another movie made on Netflix isn't considered for an Emmy, but instead is considered for Oscars? Like, and again, we're still living in a very transitional period. And I still think there are people much smarter than you and I way above our pay grade that are struggling with that issue right now. And I think in the next year or two, we're going to get a clearer picture of that. But yeah, man, you're thinking about the high level questions that are being asked at the highest level. So good on you. All right. Glenn writes, hey, John, apparently China will remove the two hour limit uh, from August. Tenant has received approval and a release date is imminent. Uh, may have something to do with the recent WB change of heart. Good news as more studios can look at international markets first uh, US later strategy. Well, I haven't heard about that yet, but I'm not surprised. I'm not surprised. Because remember, <coughs> when China had in, into that, that rule that we're limiting movie lengths in our theaters to two hours. It was their response to COVID, one of the ways of keeping it, because their, meant, their rationale was, if you are in a movie theater with somebody who has COVID, the longer you're in that theater, the greater the risk. The less amount of time you're in the theater, the less the risk. So they said, okay, one of our procedures is going to be, we're going to limit movies to two hours runtime. But they never said that was permanent, and they never said how long that would be. And if they have lifted that restriction already, I wouldn't be surprised. Again, I haven't seen that announcement myself, but if that is what they have done, I'm not surprised. It doesn't surprise me that they lifted that restriction already. Uh, anyway, but thanks for bringing that up, Glenn. I'm going to have to go and read into that. All right. Casey, the sledge storyteller writes, uh, hey, John. Recently, I mentioned in a post that I started self-publishing my own comic, which is awesome. Self-publishing is great. When you just talked about your embarrassing Star Wars fan film, it reminded me of my own embarrassing early writings. Still, how bad could the fan film be if it won awards? I, I'm telling you, for those of you who know what Casey's asking about, I I made a, uh, me and a bunch of friends made a Star Wars fan film years ago called Rise of the Trudees. And we loved it. And we played it in sold out theaters and we won a couple of fan film awards and all that kind of stuff. I hadn't seen it in over 10 years. And one day my buddy Rodney messages me and says, hey, I came across because we made DVDs with proper cases and everything. He goes, I came across my copy of Rise of the Trudees. I'm like, oh my God, I haven't seen that in like 10 years. I've never showed it to Anne. Can you send it to me? So he's like, yeah. So he puts it in the mail, sends it to me. And I start talking to my wife, right? I'm like, oh, baby, I'm going to show you this thing. You're going to be so in love with me because I'm so talented and you're going to love this thing. It's so awesome. We won awards for it. And so it shows up. Anne and I make some popcorn, sit down to watch. It's only like 20 minutes long. We sit down to watch it and I could not believe how unbearably awful it was and it was all my doing and it was bad it was so bad and i have uh, since then forbade anybody from ever watching it again so yeah i mean i i remember it being great until i watched it again it's like whoops that was something awful all right thanks for running that in man all right just time for one more guys uh this one comes to us from james bonner who writes what the hell are amc and universal thinking 
I guess they're trying to figure out a new way of uh, featuring their product and therefore creating revenue, which is all business obviously needs to do. But this idea is absolutely ridiculous. Listen, James, you're clearly not alone in that. Other movie theaters are coming out and saying this is idiotic. Uh, Regal and Cineworld are saying cold, cold day in hell that they would ever agree to something like this. And if they don't agree to it, then this deal can't go through. It is now look. Universal is just trying to do what's good for Universal. You can't blame them for that. AMC is in a very tough spot right now, and they're trying to figure out ways to survive. But again, there's no point in taking medicine if that medicine is going to kill you in two days, right? And that's kind of what it is they're doing. This is an idiotic move by them. I don't blame Universal for trying to get their own best interests furthered. I don't blame them for that. I still think it's a bad move. I don't think it's good for them either, but they think it is, so I don't blame them for that. And they're picking out the weak herd, the weak buffalo in the herd right now, AMC. Hey, that's actually kind of smart. So I get it, but it's just not a good move. All right, one more question here, guys. We'll, we'll take one more question today before we got to wrap things up. And this last question today comes for, to us from Dumbledore Calrissian, who writes, Hey, John. Although I'm not a huge fan of Man of Steel, I love when you go into why you love it and Henry Cavill's portrayal of the character with such passion. It feels a lot uh, like me when I defend The Last Jedi and its portrayal of Luke. Well, I mean, that's the beautiful thing, right, Dumbledore, is that all film is subjective and we all have our love it. And one of the things that keeps all of us not only attached to the movies, but the movie fan community is that we have those things that we're passionate about. I recognize not everybody is as passionate about Man of Steel as me. A lot of you guys don't even like Man of Steel. Some of you even hate it. And I recognize that. But it doesn't change my love for it. And there are some things you guys love that I'm not a big fan of. But I love that you love it. You know, that's one of the great things about the fan community is that these properties can enlist such passion and, 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 uh, and our fandom. And I love that. Even when it's on movies we disagree over, you can still love my passion for a movie you dislike, and I can still love your passion for a movie that you like, even if I don't, you know, and that's one of the great things about it. So thanks a lot for pointing that out, Dumbledore. I really do appreciate that. And listen, guys, there are a few others uh, out there right now. Well, we've still got questions from another one from Dumbledore, Starscream, the failed uh, journalist and all that kind of stuff. Do not worry, guys. Even though there are still a couple of those questions left, we will get to your questions first. Yours will be the first questions that we answer on the John Campion show tomorrow when we get into the live questions part. So hang tight with us. Just be patient with us for one more day. And make sure you come back and join us for that. All right, guys, that will do it for today's installment of the John Campion show. Thank you so much for being here. And a special thank you to all you guys who sent in those questions. Number one, because you gave us great fun things to talk about. And number two, you supported this channel while you did it. So thanks a lot, guys. My name is John Campia, And until next time, my friends, bye-bye.